Last week, we looked at the sweet and comforting truth of the Lord being our shepherd. And what a comfort that is to our soul, no matter what we're going through as a church or even your individual lives. And I love those illustrations of who God is as he compares himself to things that we can actually understand and grasp. It doesn't show his full character, no, but it it shows parts of it and how God interacts with his people in different ways. So this morning, in the time that we have, we're going to be looking at the scriptures again, but we're going to actually follow a theme through the Bible or, or trace an idea, and we're not going to hit all the passages because there's too many. But this is something where you can go and do more research or study on your own in your own devotional time. But it's one that, again, you are, and I am, if if you spend any time in the Bible or in the Word, you're well familiar with, and that's the idea of the Lord being our rock. What is a rock? I was joking with Cameron, I thought about even bringing a rock and just placing it up here as just a reminder and illustration of leaving it here. But what are rocks and what do they do? And why would God call himself a rock? We're going to look today at our rock and our response to that rock because it's not just that God uses the rock imagery of himself. Christ uses it of himself, tying himself to God because he is God. But as we get into the New Testament, we're also going to look at passages that show that believers are living stones as well. So the outline today is is fairly simple. We're going to look at God, our rock, Christ, the cornerstone, and believers as living stones. Those are the three ideas that we'll be looking at. Under each of those ideas, I've chosen just two passages of Scripture that we'll be in. So under each idea, we'll go to two passages of Scripture that illustrate and show and declare that idea as we go through the Bible and look at God, our rock, and our response then as living stones. Okay, so that's what we'll look at today and pray it will be a blessing and a help to your heart and your soul. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is where we'll start in our first passage, Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to start with this illustration. Have any of you ever been to Yosemite National Park or any national park, really? Why do we have national parks? They preserve, really, the beauty and the wonder and the awe-inspiring nature of God's creation, don't they? I have an aunt that actually lives right outside of Yosemite, Her and her husband work at one of the fine dining establishments there. They are servers there. And so growing up, even though I lived in Kansas, which is flatter than a pancake, scientifically proven, we would take family trips, you know, several weeks where we'd go visit uh, my aunt or aunt, depending how you say it. One of those is wrong. We won't debate that now. And I would would go visit my aunt and... uh, and she lived right outside there. And we, we, we took a few hikes in uh, Yosemite National Park. And of course, if you've been there, it's, you know, it's a, a deep valley with, with amazing mountainous features around it. Just beautiful, lush, and many waterfalls coming all throughout it. And there's, there's one feature that grabs your attention. There's one stone feature, one rock face. And it's called El Capitan. And it's a 3,000 foot tall granite rock face, just right in the middle of that that beautiful valley. And my uncle is one who would 
climb the face of that. And he's done it over the decades. He's no longer able to do it because of knee problems, as you know. But here this is, you, you stand at the base, and I've been there at the base. No, I did not even attempt to go even part of the way up. But you look up, and it's just, you know, 3,000 feet of solid rock face. And, and what have men and women done in the past when they stand at the bottom and they look up at that? What would your response be to that? Wow, that's big, that's great, that's massive, that shows, you know, something that is, that is great and enduring and powerful. And then the young men, what do they do? I want to climb it. I'm going to climb that. And that's what hundreds of people, men and women, have done over the past decades. And my uncle would talk about the different routes that you would have to take. And, and some would take up to seven days. So you're spending seven days uh, trying to traverse your way up there. And then, of course, you're sleeping from just a single point, And you're sleeping in this little sack hanging on the side of this granite face. And, and over the years, I know some of you are shaking your head. I would never do that. I'm with you there, right? My wife would never do that either. But, but there this big rock is, and it, it, it shows a sign of greatness. And if you can conquer it, right, you, you feel great and good about yourself. And, and this has been going on for decades. So now that there are hundreds of paths and hundreds of ways up this granite face, rock climbing cliff, really, some, um, you know, that take lesser amount of time. And then some are even crazy of now, now that, you know, it's been conquered once, you have to keep on upping the ante, right? The level to where they do free climbing, so no ropes, no harnesses, just your hand and some chalk going up the side of this 3,000 foot. And then, of course, that's not even enough, so what do you have to do next? You have to do speed climbing. And so what used to take seven days to do, men have done in two hours now uh, because they know the route and the way. So when you look at that rock face, there's many things that come to mind, right? So what, what is a rock or what is a mountain do for us? What does it signify? Well, there's many things that a mountain signifies, right? It, in a sense, it, it signifies endurance. It's, it's been there as long as we, we know. It, it signifies greatness. It's something that's far greater and bigger than us. It signifies steadfastness. To move a mountain, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, right? And God, in the scripture, compares himself to this idea of a rock, something that is strong and steadfast. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 2, as we look at God, our rock, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, 32, excuse me if I said 2, Deuteronomy 32. And what we're coming into in this passage is what many refer to as the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is written and sung by Moses, but it's at a very interesting time in his life. It's actually at the end of his life. In the previous chapters, Moses has just taken the mantle and, as it were, passed it off to Joshua and saying, you're the one who's going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And then Moses gives this song, and it's almost like his closing sermon to the children of Israel uh, to say some very important things. And there's two main ideas throughout the song. It's, it's God's great character and Israel's failure and foolishness. And if that's not a great summary of the Old Testament in one place, that's what it is here. And so Moses is telling us, and we begin reading in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 32, where 
Moses sings or says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew. And the small rain upon the tender herb as the showers upon the grass. So Moses is saying, I'm going to declare something, listen. And what is he going to declare, or why is he declaring it? Verse 3, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Verse 4, he is, God is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. What is Moses getting at here when he says God is the rock? He's getting at the idea here of God always does what is right. It has the idea of immutability or immutable. What does it mean to be immutable? It means not that you can mute someone or unmute them. That would be nice sometimes. No, it has the idea of unchangeable. Just like a mountain, we look out and we see the mountains around us. They look the same day to day, right? Now, yeah, we know mountains erode. Those ideas break down. But when we look at a mountain, it's something that, that is strong and towering and does not change. And here he's saying he, he is a rock. His work, work is perfect. Everything that God does is right. And all his ways are judgment. The idea is God's always going to do what's right because he is right. And he backs that up with the idea of two words, truth and without iniquity, giving both the positive and the negative idea of this. God's going to always tell the truth. And when he says it, it is truth. And the, the flip side of that is we know it's the truth because God in him, in his character, there's nothing that is iniquity, nothing wrong, nothing that is sinful or missing the mark. That's who God is as our rock, just and right. So when we come to this idea of God as our rock, here's the comfort that this brings, is that it doesn't matter what's going on in the world or around us or in us, God and his ways are right, and God will always do right. He is our rock. He goes on to sing and tell more in the following verses, but coming to verse 15 of the same song and chapter, he mentions this idea again. But Jeshurun, verse 15, Deuteronomy 32, waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. What is he saying? He's, he's giving warning to the people. He's saying they've taken on their own way of doing things. That's the idea of fatness here. And they've worshipped their own idols and their own desires and their own pleasures. They've become fat. And the idea is they've become satisfied with the things here on earth and the wicked idolatry going on. And he's saying to get to that point, what has to happen? The last part of verse 15, then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Saying to get to a point where you actually don't follow after God in his ways, you're actually then you know, trusting in your own self-goodness or your own idolatry. He's saying what that takes is a forsaking of God, and we see God is mentioned here as the creator. 
and lightly esteeming the rock, the rock of what? Salvation, the one who has brought deliverance to an individual. And so there's this two, two ideas, light, or forsaking and lightly esteeming. What does it mean to forsake? It has the idea of turning the back and walking away. But lightly esteeming is different. You're not giving the reverence due to something that is great, like a great rock, like a great towering mountain. And what, is that rock, what has that rock done for you? Well, he's created you, but he's also redeemed or saved you. Remember, Moses is giving these warnings to the children of Israel, one who had experienced God in a visible way even. And he's warning them against the dangers of forsaking God or lightly esteeming the great God who has brought salvation, redemption to them. This idea of rock then comes up again just a few verses later. Verse 18, he says, Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful and hast forgotten God that formed thee goes even further into the same idea of the creator of all, the one that begot thee, that brought you into existence, that chose you as a people. You're unmindful and you have forgotten the very God that even formed you. So there's a warning here too for God as our rock. There's great comfort, but God as our rock brings a warning as well. Don't forget, don't neglect the great things God has done in your life. Most of all, the salvation as as a believer that he has brought but even all the other great things he has shown the wonders in. Then there's two other verses I want to look at in this passage before we move on, and that's verses 30 and 31, where he's going to compare then God as our rock to all the other rocks or idols around. Verse 30, how should one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight? In other words, the odds are not in your favor if it's one against a thousand, right? Except, middle of verse 30, their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. What is he saying? You compare our God to any of the other people's gods or what anyone else would worship and there's nothing like him. He is the greatest. He is the rock, our rock, towering above all. And those other idols, they're really just, what, little stones, right, that are carved into shapes, but they do nothing for those other people. And here's the proof of that. How else can you explain one man taking on a thousand and winning? In fact, the enemies even testify, is what he's saying, the enemies even testify to God being the greatest, the great rock, because they've defeated, we have been victorious So in this song, briefly, of Deuteronomy 32, we see that God is immutable. He has brought us salvation. He is our creator. He is great, and he is unmatched. There's no comparison to any other gods. That's who God is as our rock. God, our rock, I also want to look at the words of David. Song of Moses, obviously, is very apt for this, but David, of course, wrote this same idea. We're going to look at one of his writings, Psalm 18. Psalm 18, we could actually look in many places because David uses this illustration or this idea of God as a rock often. There's 50 verses here, but we're just going to read the select few again as we looked at in Deuteronomy 32. Psalm 18, what's happening with David right here? Well, this If you read the heading, if you have there, it says, A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, 
who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and specifically from the hand of Saul. So where is David right now? Escaping by the skin of his teeth, right? He has the king of Israel out to get him and wanting to take his, his life. And so what is his response? Well, he explodes really into these 50 verses of praise to God for all that he has done. We'll start reading with these first six verses and then read a few more later on. Where he says in Psalm 18, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. What is the idea of a rock here? Someone that can protect, right? What do you build your high fortress or the fortresses out of? What do we still build something out of today, even today, if we want it to be strong and enduring? We use concrete. We've figured out how to uh, add a lot of stuff to rocks to make them even stronger and last longer, but yet it's still used as a durable and safe building material, even for high defense situations, right? To keep the enemy out. And here David is saying, God is the one who is my rock and my fortress. The one, remember, he noticed he says this, this idea twice, the strength. This idea of strength comes up twice. And that, that feeds right into the idea of horn of salvation. A horn is, is part of the animal where their strength is found. So in God, as our rock, is one who gives protection and one who gives strength to his people. And so David continues to testify of that. Verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. It cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. In a time of distress... Are you distressed at all? Do you have distresses? Has death ever come knocking at your door or come very close? Have you ever had enemies? Maybe they didn't want to kill you. Maybe they did. I don't know all your lives. But have there been people out to get you? Where are you finding your strength? Where are you finding your protection? Where are you finding your hope and confidence in? David here, after having gone through all of that, says, I will call upon the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will look to the Lord because he hears me. We'll get to this later on, but this, this rock is not a stone-faced object that doesn't listen or hear us. This rock is our great God who knows our very need and listens to us. David goes on to say in verse 30 the same idea. I can rest in the Lord, Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. Is the way that you travel always perfect? We talked about that last week. No, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's rocky, it's uphill, it's through the shadow of death. But yet God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those 
who trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? Or who is a rock save our God? In other words, if you're going to look for salvation, if you're going to look for strength, if you're going to look for greatness, look to God and God alone. It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. And then verse 46, one that we know well, there's song about this. The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. God is our fortress, our security, our strength, our salvation. Look to God, our rock, today for his steadfast, unchanging character. God revealed himself as a rock or, or showed himself, compared himself to that idea of a rock in the Old Testament. But there's actually many prophecies in the New Testament that speak and show directly of Jesus Christ himself being a rock as well. So next, we've looked at God, our rock. Now we're going to look at Jesus, our cornerstone. If you would turn to Matthew 21, we're going to look at two passages again under this idea of Jesus, the cornerstone. Matthew 21. And in both of the passages we're going to look at, one is Jesus speaking, one is Paul speaking, or writing, and they both are quoting Old Testament passages or prophecies about Christ himself, showing how Christ is God, but also showing how Christ is this idea of the rock or the cornerstone. In Matthew chapter 21, we'll start in verse 42, so near the end of the passage, end of this chapter, Matthew 21, verse 42, it says, Jesus saith unto them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected, the same is become the head of the corner, or we could call the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting right there Psalm 118, where Christ is saying, didn't you read the stone that the builders rejected. Why would the builders reject a stone? Well, they think it either doesn't fit or it's not good enough, right? They threw it to the side. But Jesus is saying, the Jewish people, they rejected me as Messiah, is the idea. They're, they're putting me to the side. Yet that same has become the head of the corner. What's a cornerstone? What do you use a cornerstone for? Well, it's the, the stone in the corner of the building that you align everything else to. Today we have all these fancy things, right? Like lasers and, and uh, computers that help architects make something that is usually mostly square. I don't know about your house, how square it is. If you've done any upgrades and you've had someone else build it that you know, came before and maybe they were doing a whole bunch really fast, there might be certain areas that aren't quite so square or that tilt a little bit, or the foundation isn't uh, as level as it should be. But here, they're saying the, the builders, the, the, the people that didn't know any better, that really rejected Christ, they threw away that stone. But God said, no, that's actually the very stone I want to use to align my new covenant, all of my people too, and it's Jesus Christ himself. 
So he's quoting Psalm 118 there. But then he goes on in verse 43 to say, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. He's talking to the Pharisees, the Jewish people. He's saying, because you've rejected me, I'm going to take away that and give it to someone who will receive it. So he gives then a warning in verse 44. But whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And there he's quoting the ideas back in Daniel chapter 2 of the vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and this rock coming and crushing all the nations of the world. And it doesn't matter if you fall on the rock or the rock falls on you. Who wins in both cases? The rock does. This cornerstone does. Christ does. So Christ here is both setting himself up and showing that he is God and all of God's characteristics, but he's also showing that he is God's Messiah, the one who would, the church would be patterned and built and go after. And then he gives that same warning. So Christ as the rock is unexpected to the Jews, but it's also one that we need to frame and build our lives around, and also one that is powerful in judgment. He has the ability to crush and to grind to powder And so the admonition is you better listen to Christ as the Messiah because he is the cornerstone. Paul also reiterates this idea or gives more to it in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is what we'll look at next. Again, the end of the passage. This is a section in Romans where Paul is, is really pleading with his own people, wanting them to be saved, the Jewish people, but also showing to all people, who Christ is. So Romans chapter 9, Paul says in verse 31, But Israel, the Jewish people, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, And then he quotes from Isaiah 8 and verse 33. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, or Zion, Jerusalem, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. What is Paul arguing here? He's saying the people of Israel, God's chosen people, they were trying to attain unto godliness or follow God's way by obeying the law. And doing everything that God said in the law. And if you know any of Israel's history, how did they do at that? Not so great. Let me ask you a question, though. How do you and I do at that? At following God's perfect and just and unchanging ways? Not so good. So how were they trying to attain it? They were trying to attain it, verse 32 tells us specifically, by their own works, by their own doings. They were trying to get to God, to have the right relationship with God. And, and Paul is saying here, that's not how it works. Your own works are not going to get you in a right relationship with this great God, the rock, who both brings judgment and salvation. But what brings, though, that right relationship or that restoration? Well, he tells us that as well, because they didn't do it. Verse 32, they sought it not by faith. He's saying that's the right way. It's only by faith, and it's faith in something that they had, had uh, thrown out. We already looked at, Christ was thrown out, 
that, that stone which the builders rejected. And that's what he goes into here again, that he's saying they weren't willing to take by faith that Christ was the true Messiah. In fact, what Christ turned out to be was a stumbling stone or a rock of offense. What is a stumbling stone? Have you ever been hiking mountain trail? Stepped on a stone just the right way or the wrong way? I know some of you have been there and maybe broken a bone in your body. My father was up near uh, Yosemite uh, at my aunt's house and he went for a hike behind there. He decided uh, he wanted to get some pictures. There was some natural flowing falls and springs there as well. Beautiful area, of course. Getting pictures got a little too close to the stream. Wet rocks can be a, st- a slippery stumbling stone as well, right? What happened into the stream? Thankfully, there were other rocks of offense, ones that he got caught up on, one that caught his foot and prevented him from going over a waterfall, but still ended up with broken bones and air lifting out and all of that, you know. And he recovered from all that, but I remember him being on the couch for a while based on just what? A stumbling stone, right? A slippery rock. Sent him down. It was not the trail. It was the stream. And so those who would try to gain access to God by their own works, they actually stumble over Christ on the way because Christ is saying, it's not your own works. It's not your own way. Only I can do it. And I have done it. And Christ has done it all by his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's even a rock of offense. It's not just something that you trip over, but it's something like a, a, that offends. We use that word a lot in our culture. It's a little different here. It's the idea of snaring or getting entrapped. In other words, you're so entrapped in your own way of doing things that when you see Christ, you say, oh, it can't be that, right? <laughs> but yet Christ is saying, no, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Christ is the cornerstone, is the one that we are, we'll see in a little bit, that we're to pattern our lives after. He's, he's God, but he's also the one that may offend or trip other people up because they're not willing to believe by faith that Christ is who he said he is. So it comes down to this. If you want to have a relationship with our, the great God, our God, the creator of all, the one who's great, who, who brings salvation, who redeems, who is the strong fortress, it comes through Christ the cornerstone that God has set up, the one who has laid down his life and has taken our place and has suffered for our sins so that we can have the right fellowship with him. And that's then what we'll turn to is we've looked at God, our rock, and Christ, the cornerstone. Now we'll look at us, believers, as living stones. There's two passages we could look at here. We'll, we'll go to Ephesians chapter 2 first to start on this idea and then we'll finish in first peter chapter 2 ephesians 2 and then first peter 2 believers as living stones ephesians 2 verse 19 says now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of god and are built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 
in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So he's saying if you want to build your life right, you're part of actually the house of God the people of God, the church, the assembly of God. And he's saying you have to pattern this after Jesus Christ, not man's words or any of man's traditions. And where do you get Jesus' words or ideas from? Well, you get them from the apostles and prophets. He's saying it comes from their teachings, their lives. And we can look back on that and see who are some of the apostles' prophets. Well, the one that comes immediately to mind when we're talking about the rock is the one who is named after the rock, Peter. His name means rock. And remember what Christ said to him after he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ said, on this, I will build my church. And I believe he meant both Peter's confession, but remember, he also used Peter himself on the day of Pentecost really to jumpstart the church and showing that Christ is the only way of salvation. And it's through him then that we have life, that we're able to have Not just a dead, stony heart, as the Old Testament talks about, but a living stone, one that is part of what God is doing here on the earth. So as God, our rock, and Christ, our cornerstone, the call to us is to be a living stone in his house. In other words, to be aligned with the cornerstone, to be aligned with his purposes and his commission, his way, and to be living in a way that shows that I know this God and his spirit is within me. And we do this together. It's a building that is built together with many lively stones. It's not something we do on our own. It's something that we come together. And that's why things even like the meeting together of believers is so important so that we can fellowship, that we can encourage one another, that we can disciple one another. And aren't all these things what we're supposed to be doing anyways in our Christian walk in life? Yes. The last passage we'll turn to is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Really a great discipleship book showing false teachers how we're supposed to live, the Lord's coming reminding ourselves continually of these truths. First Peter and Second Peter speak of all of these things. And in First Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter admonishes the believers, those who would be part of the Lord and his house. It says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envies and evil speakings, what are those? All works of the flesh. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so, or since you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? That he is good? Saying then desire to know him more through his words. Verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. It's talking of Christ here, the living stone, you know, rejected by men, but, ex- but is accepted and chosen of God and precious. He goes on to say then and turns the focus to you and to me in verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We could spend all of our time, really, this morning in just verse 5 there, what it means that we're lively stones, that we're built up a spiritual house, that we're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. All of this is, is reflecting back on the temple and what people did there. But he's saying even as a New Testament body of believers, the church, we are to go forward building up God's mission and purposes, not our own. Verse 6, wherefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, that he that believeth on him shall not be confounded or confused. Unto you, therefore, which believe is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto ye also were appointed. So how are we to live then, if God is our rock, Christ is our cornerstone, we are lively stones? Well, that's what he goes on in verses 9 through 11. Would you read those verses out loud with me? First Peter 2, we'll start in verse 9. Familiar passage. Read out loud with me together. But ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not attained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Notice the encouragement here as being a lively stone in God's temple. That we are called, we are chosen as a, a peculiar people. Not someone who's strange, but someone who is going after different desires and purposes than the rest of the world. A royal priesthood. Not someone else that needs, you know, a mediator in a man to get to God, but someone who has direct access to God because of Christ. A holy nation, people who are set apart to do God's will and way. And what is the reason behind all of those things? That you, that I, would show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Has God called you out of darkness? Has God rescued you from your own sin? Has God given you a new purpose in life? The admonition here is show forth that glory. What about in times of hardship? God is your rock. He is your salvation. He is your fortress. Praise him just as David did. And that is the call here. Live according to the live cornerstone. Align yourself with him. Live as part of God's house your life is for God's purposes and choose to praise God because he is our rock. Christ is the cornerstone and we are living stones.